Hi and welcome to Terra.2's Climate Podcast. Focusing on developing countries, we hope to cover a range of issues relating to climate change, sustainability, development, conservation and many more. Today's guest is Chandra Bhushan. He is one of India's foremost environment and climate change experts. He is the president and CEO of the International Forum for Environment, Sustainability and Technology, IFORUS. He was deputy director of Center for Science and Environment from 2010 to 2019. He has researched, written and campaigned for issues ranging from climate change and energy transformation to rights of mining affected people and industrial pollution. He was conferred with the Ozone Partnership Award for his contributions towards the framing of the Kigali Amendments to the Montreal Protocol by UNEF in 2017. I'm Kizi Manyan and I'll be your host for today. Chandrabhushan, thanks so much for coming on the show. I'm going to get started by asking you this. Can you talk to us about a couple of defining moments in your climate change journey? Thank you, Kirti. It's my pleasure to be part of this podcast. Frankly, I have not had quote-unquote defining moment, so to say, in my climate change journey. Uh, Instead, what I have had is a series of a better understanding on climate change, which has developed over a period of last 10 to 15 years. So let me explain it to you a little bit. When I started working on climate change issue, I basically was working on international negotiations. And at that point of time, and I'm talking about pre-Copenhagen climate summit, the international politics on climate change was deeply divided between developed and developing countries. That's where my journey on climate change started. Now, over a period of 15 years, since Copenhagen, I have attended more or less all the climate conferences, the annual conference of parties. My understanding on climate change has evolved. And it has evolved precisely because of the failure of the international negotiations and UNFCCC in general, the Framework Convention in general. That has been one part of my understanding. The other part has been my evolution of my understanding on impacts of climate change in India itself, which again, there has not been any defining moment. I very closely watched what happened in 2005 in Mumbai. I, in fact, studied it carefully. I have looked at Kerala flood, which happened in 2018. And in between a number of extreme weather events, including we had Hudhud in Visakhapatnam, Vizak. So over a period of time, I think both from international politics as well as on impacts of climate change, my understanding has evolved. And frankly, my politics 15 years back and my politics today is very different. My understanding of climate change has taken a 180 degrees turn now. So 15 years ago, if you would have asked me about climate change, I would have told you that all the responsibilities is of developed countries and that developing countries need to emit because they need to grow. That's not my position today. I still believe that developed countries need to do more, but I believe there is a huge opportunity for developing countries to use climate change and usher in 
a new wave of economic growth and prosperity in the 21st century. So it's complete 180 degree turn that has happened over the past 15 years. I find it very interesting. In that sense, you're able to very clearly define that you have actually made the sea change in your attitude towards what is happening in climate change itself. But that is very, very interesting. I consider that defining, if I may say so. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Yeah, different podcast guests describe India's climate change issues in kind of varied ways. We would like to hear your perspective, maybe by focusing on two or three issues. For me, the tagline for climate change in India, especially with respect to India, is that we have everything to lose and everything to gain, and that depends on our approach. And as I said in my reply to the first question, that it depends on India how it approaches climate change. Okay. If we approach climate change only as, quote-unquote, victim of climate change, we are losing a large opportunity that exists for India to transition to true green economy. And this has been the politics of climate change for me because for the past, in fact, even today, if you talk to government of India, it is we are the victim of climate change and that developed countries need to do more and that we need carbon space to grow. That's what is still the position of government of India. But in this narrative, India loses a vast opportunity to transition its economy. Today, we are at the cusp of revolution in renewable energy. Uh, We are at tipping point in electric mobility. We are at tipping point in producing industrial goods using a completely modern technology than what we have done in 20th and 19th century. 19th and 20th century industrialization technologies are extremely resource intensive and highly polluting. That need not be the case in 21st century. And we are still growing, unlike the developed world, who have already built their industrial and urban capital and infrastructure. We are still building. So we have an opportunity to decide whether we want to build gray and black. That's what I call industrialization and urbanization of 20th century. or, Or we want to build green which could be the defining opportunity for India. India could be leader in green technology. So let me just repeat again. For me, the way to define, describe India's climate change would be that we have everything to gain and everything to lose, depending on our approach, how we are looking at climate change. So my question then is, what do you think should be the nudge that the government needs? Is Does it need people telling? Does it need other international voices telling it to perhaps go along that way? What do you think the nudge is in that sense? I think the nudge has to come internally within the country. And I also believe leadership is required for this nudge. I also believe that private sector will have to play a major role in this nudge. Let me explain. Across the world, if you see how private sector is moving to new technologies, then there are a few things that comes out quite clearly. One, that you should not expect established businesses to push for rapid change. That has never happened historically in the world. For example, take the example of Ford Motors. 
Ford Motors got internal combustion engine. They revolutionized internal combustion engine for transportation. And it is very difficult for Ford Motors now to move to electric vehicles. They are probably the laggards of global automobile companies on electric vehicles. And similarly, in every industry that you see, the old establishment is for status quo. And therefore, the transition and rapid transition that happens, that happens largely if a countries allow new companies to come in, into a sector. For example, again, I'm going to give you the example of US, where Tesla now is more valuable, which is basically making all the electric cars, is more valuable than many of the automobile, established automobile companies put together. And Tesla has got into automobile sector only in last decade. So when I say private sector has a huge role to play, it means India must have open culture of entrepreneurship to bring new companies and new ideas and startup into the sector. Till the time, we will depend on existing and established industrial houses to push for change. It's not going to happen. Okay, so that's where... I always talk about the need for new companies to push new ideas. So finally, the nudge has to come internally. It also has to be a cultural change within the country that will happen. And the last point I would like to make, change is also about sentiments. Yeah. The more sentiment we can build around green economy and convince people that green economy is as good as the brown and the black economy, more people getting convinced about this idea. I think this thing about like individual choices kind of building into a collective voice, I think it holds so, so true. I want to move on to your organization, IFORES, which is International Forum for Environment, Sustainability and Technology. What are the key areas that it looks at? See, IFORES was set up precisely for two things which we found problematic in, in the current environmental organizations in India. One that most of the environmental organizations, and I'm talking about the bigger ones and so-called quote-unquote the think tanks, are all focused on getting certain policy changes done at the center. They're very Delhi-focused organizations. I mean to say if you start counting good environmental organizations outside India, you will have difficulty in counting them on your finger seat. There are not many. So one, that the environmental movement in India is very Delhi-centric movement and is focused on getting policy changes. That is one. Second, environment is a sector where technology has not come. In fact, it is very, very surprising that in almost all sectors of the economy, the modern ICT technology has taken root from banking to infrastructure to every other sector. I do not think environment sector is any different than any other sector. It is only environment sector where technology has not taken. So if you look at these two things, and the third point is that the Delhi policy doesn't get implemented at the ground level. India's biggest failure in environment movement or environmental field is that our policies don't get translated into action. And therefore, we have large non-compliance with our environmental law. 
So we looked at the landscape and we decided that maybe time has come to set up an institution which will look at innovation and bottom-up action. And that's what iForest is about. iForest, as an organization, is focused on innovation in policy and innovation in practice. But both these innovation is targeted towards making sure that we have large-scale transformation on the ground. And how do we use innovation to do that? That's what broadly is, is our focus of work. So we will work in policy research. We will do advocacy and, and communication. But our focus is going to be on innovation and bottom-up action. Sounds good. So I want to talk about COVID. And COVID has hit everyone hard across the world. Do you think in India there have been any benefits to the environment from the lockdown at all? Or do you think it's all superfluous? Well, it is superfluous because when the entire country was shut down, you saw improvement in river water quality and air quality, which is commonsensical. <laughs> when people are not moving on the roads, businesses are closed, you will see improvements in the environmental quality. So it's superfluous because... Now, as the economy is opening up, we are seeing worsening of air quality already in cities like Delhi. Now, having said that, I think there is a bigger issue to address here. And there's a historical context to this. That post-major pandemics, historically, the environmental degradation has actually rapidly increased. So, for example, post-Spanish flu in 1918 till 20, we had something called as Roaring Twenties. Essentially, during that time, the global economy increased tremendously before we had the stock market crash of 1928. And during this eight-year period, there was large-scale deforestation, mining activities, infrastructure building, all those things happened. So... Generally, what has been seen historically is that post-pandemic, governments push for bringing the economy at the same level or even better than what was before pandemic. And the quickest way to do it is by exploiting the environment. Whether you want to bring more land for agriculture or do more mining or build more infrastructure. And we are already seeing this trend in India, if you look at the first stimulus package that government of India unveiled, there was doubling of coal production. There was a big package for coal and infrastructure. And then states were encouraged to dilute, you know, labor and environmental laws. Uh, for example, there is a huge controversy that is happening on environmental impact assessment. So that trend we already see. So my biggest worry is that what will happen post-pandemic? Simply because it would be really a waste of an opportunity if we do not learn from COVID about the role environmental destruction has played in, in first of all, in this pandemic. And the role environmental destruction will play going ahead in another pandemic and in climate change and in many other environmental destruction that we are likely to witness. Yeah, I think it's just a tendency of the economy needs to come back. That's what people's first thought is and the government's first thought is as well. So I guess that business as usual, unfortunately, 
and might happen. And then once that happens, it's the environment that has to pay the price. And along with that, it's us paying the price as well for that, right? Eventually, at some point. Yeah, eventually, yes. But see, I don't think there is any problem in getting the economy back to the previous level or even surpasses, surpass it through a green policy or green investment portfolio. I think it is possible for India in today's technological advancement to not think about coal and think about renewable energy and storage to push for energy access and energy generation. Similarly, we can think about investing more in railways than in roads. So there are bouquet of options available for us to adopt a green package rather than the business as usual package that we are adopting. Hopefully that's what, exactly what's going to happen. So you mentioned the environmental impact assessment and, you know, there's a huge controversy about it. The environmentalists are all up in arms. Talk to us more about this, please. See, I have a different opinion than most of the environmentalists and I have read what is the comments being put out. Essentially, people are saying that it's scrap 2020 or improve it a little bit. Now, my contention is that EIA notification, draft notification 2020, frankly, is no different than what exists in 2006. 2020 is a little worse than 2006. But the fact is, if you put together the 2006 notifications, and 2006 notification has been amended 43 times, plus there are 50 plus official memorandum, put them together, then you see that 2020 is no different than 2006. What draft 2020 does, it pulls together all the revisions at one place, apart from some other dilution that it has done. So frankly speaking, if 2020 is bad, then 2006 is equally bad, or maybe a little less bad. That's what my position is. And 2006 is bad because, frankly, I believe that the EIA process in India is, is completely defunct now. 99.9% of projects are cleared. The public hearing against which there is so much resentment right now that 2020 is diluting public hearing. Under 2006 also, public hearing is a sham. In India, public hearing is neither an informed consultation nor informed consent. And most of the public hearings are held with police force and violence is not uncommon. So, the current EIA process is essentially a lot of paperwork with little to show on the ground. And most importantly, it is bad science. See, EIA process of relying solely on EIA of individual project is a bad science because environment doesn't recognize one project. Environment is cumulative impact of all activities. Absolutely. And therefore, just relying on one EIA, in EIA of individual project to safeguard environment is bad science. So I very strongly believe that there is a case now to rethink EIA, which brings in good science and good public participation, a real public participation uh, for good decision making, which is for environment as well as for business. Because as I said, the current EIA process is bad for environment, but in many ways it is also bad for business because it is paperwork and takes a lot of time. 
So we have to start thinking about a new EIA law. And that law should be, I believe, should be discussed in the parliament because the current EIA law is a subordinate legislation. It is part of a subordinate legislation of the main legislation, which is Environmental Protection Act. And because it is a subordinate legislation, it is very easy to amend it and, and bring out official memorandum and dilute the law. So I also believe that maybe the time has come for parliament to discuss a new EIA law, which is suitable for 21st century, which is also discussed and debated across the country because EIA law in many cases is one of the most important piece of environmental legislation. So that's my position on EIA. Thank you so much. It's very interesting to hear your perspective about this. Thank you so much for that. Can you please explain more about sustainability in the mining sector? You've been a campaigner for inclusive growth development. You push the idea of profit sharing with mining affected communities. And this has contributed the creation of district mineral foundation in the mine districts. Can you tell us more about the work you're doing in Jharkhand, Odisha, Chhattisgarh to help institutionalize the DMS space? So, first of all, let me give you a little background of how my work started in the mining district. And you can say that in this case, there was a defining moment right. <laughs> in mining. <laughs> in 2007, I uh, had an opportunity to travel across the eastern India and see the impact of mining on the environment and communities. So, I traveled for about three months, or 10 weeks, frankly, from Orissa to Chhattisgarh to Jharkhand to see what was the implications of mining. And this, this travel got converted into a major book when I was at Center for Science and Environment. And the name of the book is Rich Lands, Poor People. Is Sustainable Mining Possible? So you can see that book. It became later on a magnum opus because I think it became about 400 pages book. But before that, my understanding on natural resource management was very bookish and theoretical. But this travel opened my eyes to the realities of mine. And in that book, what I, I did was I essentially took five maps and put them one above another. So let me explain. You take the mining map of India, the mineral map of India. On top of that map, you put the forest map of India. On top of that, you put the water map of India. On top of that, you put the poverty map of India. And you put the Naxalite movement map of India. All these five maps. And you are likely to get the same matching area. The areas are common. So the most mineral-rich, forest-rich, water-rich part of India are the poorest and in the midst of civil war. So there has to be something fundamentally wrong that why richest land have poorest people. Okay, that's why the name of the book, Rich Lands, Poor People. And essentially, the realization was that the wealth of minerals are never invested back in the mineral mining areas itself. Neither value addition happens there. So communities have nothing to gain from mining. They at the maximum get informal labor or few jobs. That's what is there because most of the wealth of mining moves out of the district to either the state capital 
that's where most of the royalties are invested or as profit to major metropolitan city in case of jharkhand for example it goes to kolkata or in other parts of india it goes to mumbai where the corporate headquarters is there's hardly any investment that happens in the mining areas and therefore most mining areas are probably have the worst infrastructure and uh, human development indicator and therefore we said that the time has come now to start thinking about what the local community is going to get out of it why should someone give you land get their water and air polluted get displaced from their land and get nothing in return okay and that was the idea of profit sharing which we started working on from 2007 2008 and got it after 7 years in 2015 wow yeah it was a long haul to get this done but there was another part of the story which we couldn't get done this also tells you how difficult it is to even with best information and best intention it is not easy to bring about change in policy and practice in this country so the other part of recommendation was we essentially at the end of the book said that india needs a new social and environmental contract from mining companies okay paraphrasing rousseau frankly so we got the social contract a new social contract in terms of district mineral foundation but the second part was a new environmental contract in which we had we had listed large number of issues to be addressed including revision of mines and mineral development and regulation act and mine related regulations reform of eia process and other things unfortunately hasn't happened we continue to work but currently what we are doing is that we have dmf and dmf is a big corpus of money in fact in some of the districts uh, the contribution of dmf would be far bigger than the district's budget itself so we have to make sure that this is people's money this is not government's money yeah okay district mental foundation as an institution is a profit sharing mechanism for people so we need to ensure that people understand that it is their money people should understand that they have the decision making power in terms of where this money should get invested and not the district administration though district administration has a, certainly an important role to play in terms of making sure that investment is accountable and transparent so right now what we are doing in jharkhand orissa and chatisgarh is actually to institutionalize dmf to develop investment frameworks to build capacity to increase awareness this is the kind of work that we are currently doing it sounds absolutely brilliant you're giving people the the right to kind of deserve and that's honestly something that should be coming from the government but the way things are is just the way things are i want to talk about expert member for basic which is brazil south africa india china group of countries on climate change can you tell us more about the group how does it function and what impact does it have so i was actively part of basic expert group till 2017 right okay i haven't been engaging with them post 2017 precisely because basic has now diminishing role in the international climate change negotiation i see and i'm also slowly coming out of basic politics because i think what binds basic is not so much positive environmental politics so much as opposing force to developed countries so basically as a group 
the idea of basic as a group came about because these are emerging economies of the world and they wanted to counter the narrative of the developed world that was the reason why basic was formed in 2009 at copenhagen and jairam ramesh played a, a very crucial role in conceptualizing basic now the politics of 2009 and the politics of 2020 is very different in 2009 we had an option at that point of time to develop a different narrative on climate change in which developed world could have done a lot of work and cut their emission which they have not and developing world still had time to transition to low carbon economy okay so that was the narrative in 2009 a post paris that narrative has gone right the narrative is not there so basic is today is more about reiterating old politics and and being an opposition block to developed countries block which is important let me not downgrade it but i believe very strongly that basic politics will have to change and i also believe that india doesn't belong to basic anymore okay and let me explain it to you in one minute yes please if you look at basic group we have brazil south africa india and china okay and in terms of either per capita income or in terms of per capita emission or in terms of climate vulnerabilities brazil south africa and china are very different than india okay i believe india falls more with other developing countries than basic i mean to say i do not believe india should remain in any group with china not because of what is happening today i have been very vocal about this even in 2015 that paris cop because china has always used india to get its work done in international climate politics so china essentially whenever china has to oppose something it puts india in front and we have a habit of talking where chinese don't chinese keep quiet okay so if chinese have to get anything done they will say okay india go and speak and then from behind what china does it makes deals with other countries and this came out quite clearly as part of paris agreement till the last few days of paris agreement it was clear that basic was together and that we are not going to make a deal with developed countries and then at the last moment china and us made deal and the paris agreement was signed india has nothing it got nothing okay i don't think that basic as a group has a reason to survive now and it is better that a new climate narrative is built based on what countries can do now for protecting the climate then the narrative of the basic countries i'm jumping a few questions but you brought up cop and you brought up the paris agreement so most of our podcast guests have described cop 25 as a failure and they blamed the uh, brazil they blamed australia they blamed the us now cop 26 happens in glasgow next year touchwood what are your expectations if any from it see kirti my understanding is now that unfccc as a process has run its course right the framework convention was signed in an era when the world only had one superpower the us and us was the single most important country in the world it was also the largest emitter it was the most 
economically powerful country and Russia had collapsed, China was nowhere, India was nowhere. That was an era when UNFCCC was signed. The world is very different than 1990s. US is no more the most powerful country in the world. US today is running away from multilateralism under Trump. US is withdrawing from global institutions from WHO to UNFCCC. China's rise has been spectacular. In fact, China today emits close to 12 billion tons of carbon dioxide. No one would have thought about it. Okay. And it has all happened in the last 25 years. You now have Russia. So we live in a very multipolar world today. And the Paris Agreement is a bottom-up agreement. Essentially, it leaves countries to do whatever they want to do. So frankly, there is not much meat left in UNFCCC. So UNFCCC has run its role and therefore we should not have a lot of expectations from COP process, what it is going to achieve. And that has been the history of last 30 years. That COP process has not achieved much. Okay, In terms of global emissions are only increasing we have not been able to bend the curve. One can argue that there may be the rate of growth of emissions have reduced. Certainly, yes. UNFCCC has increased awareness on climate change. Yes. But has it been effective in terms of saving the climate so far? The answer is no. So I think the world now needs to frame a new multilateralism for 21st century. Something that brings everyone together rather than divides the world between the global north and the global south, between developed and developing countries. Because frankly, we don't have much time. If one believes in the impact that 1.5 degree temperature increase is going to have on all of us, then in that case, we don't have much time. We have maybe two decades to make wholesale transition or three decades to make wholesale transition that we want. And that cannot be done only by developed countries or by developing countries taking all the responsibility. It has to be a shared responsibility and proactive shared responsibility. So we need a completely different uh, framing of international cooperation on climate change, which UNFCCC unfortunately is not able to provide. So which brings me to you won an award, the Ozone Partnership Award for the framing of the Kigali Amendment in the Montreal Protocol. So within that context, what kind of change do you think needs to be kind of enforced? And it's a very scary prospect when you say we have three decades. If you think about kids growing up and future generations, what are we leaving them with? I'm just trying to understand when you talk about reframing it and talking about more cooperation between the North and the South, and that's a very hard barrier to break. Can you maybe suggest two or three key things that need to get done? So... I think the narrative has to change. The current narrative is around, quote-unquote, something called as carbon budget. And the carbon budget is essentially how much emission the world can do for every degree increase in temperature. That will happen. So, for example, for 1.5 degree, I think we are left with less than 500 billion tons of emission. From now till we hit 1.5 degree. And the politics, therefore, today is who is going to reduce how much emission 
and how that carbon cake of 500 billion ton is going to be shared. That's what the politics is. This is what the politics is about sharing of carbon budget. I want to reframe that. And I think the politics has to be not in terms of sharing of carbon budget, but making carbon budget irrelevant. Okay, Because there's nothing much to share now. The current global emission is already more than 50 billion tons. And we have 500 billion ton carbon budget, which is which means that it's going to last only 10 years. Okay. And China is already at 12 billion. I think US is about 6 billion. Both of them combined are taking care of 40% of the global emissions. Emissions are also increasing in India. And Europe has frankly outsourced this emission to China and other countries. So, frankly, if you look at European emission, they can show that their emissions have reduced in terms of production, but their emissions have not reduced in terms of consumption. Their consumption-based emissions have only increased. So, no one in the world, frankly, has been able to reduce emissions. And this politics is making, frankly, countries fight over this so-called scarce resource, which is carbon. So we will have to make carbon irrelevant by talking about how do we transition to non-carbon technologies. So who is going to move to non-carbon technologies the fastest? Okay, how fast every country can move? And what kind of global collaborative mechanism we need for this quick transition? That has to be the debate. So the debate has to be how quickly the world can move away from coal to renewable energy electricity, okay? How quickly can world move away from gas as a cooking fuel to electricity as a cooking fuel? How quickly can we make internal combustion engine history and move to electric motors? So we now have to start talking about transition rather than talking about how much more I can emit, okay? Now that change in narrative is what is required. It's a change in language completely. And the new narrative will require a new framework. And that could be a global collaborative framework, for example, to support some developing countries in getting renewable energy instead of coal-based thermal power plants. So the only way I see that we can solve climate change conundrum is if we make the entire debate on climate change, which is wrapped around responsibility and accountability and carbon budget history. That's what we will have to do. So, Kirti, I just also want to talk about a little bit about Montreal Protocol. because, of course, of course, by all means. Yeah, because Montreal Protocol, frankly, is the only legally binding environmental treaty of 21st century. Paris Agreement is not legally binding. Okay, so people do not realize that the Kigali Amendments to the Montreal Protocol is legally binding, unlike Paris Agreement, which is not legally binding on anyone. And it has come about with a cooperation of developed and developing countries. What is also advantageous of Montreal Protocol is it is focused on one aspect of environment, which is emission of ozone depleting and global warming causing gases. Largely refrigerants that we use in our air conditioner and refrigerators. Montreal Protocol does show and also indicates that instead of thinking about all encompassing climate negotiations that we are doing right now at UNFCCC, it would also be 
good for the world to think about breaking UNFCCC into manageable parts. Going ahead, if we are looking at new multilateralism, then instead of thinking about something like UNFCCC where everything and anything can be discussed, we can think about breaking them down into manageable parts so that discussion can happen and parties can agree. Because what is happening currently at UNFCCC is that parties do agree on something but disagree on other things. That collapses the meeting completely. So I think one of the learnings from Montreal Protocol is that international negotiations are successful when they are manageable in terms of scope. And that we see also with WTO, for example. Okay, WTO is everything that happens in trade. You just have one platform to discuss. And it becomes unmanageable. And in management systems, there is a limit till which the complexities can be handled by one institution. So that's one of the learning of, of Montreal Protocol. The second learning of Montreal Protocol is that it is always advantageous of, for developing countries to take the lead rather than to follow developed countries. And that we did in Montreal Protocol in Kigali amendments very well. India took the lead. India actually put out a proposal in terms of what the world needs to do in terms of phasing down these harmful gases. And that was extremely helpful to India because India had a leadership position in terms of steering the discussion at the international level. At UNFCCC, we have always been reactive to what developed countries propose. So the second learning is that it is always advantageous for a country like India to have a leadership position rather than be effective. And the last learning is that it is also an opportunity to leapfrog the industry itself. So India has an opportunity to leapfrog to a completely natural refrigerant industry rather than be with this fluorinated gas industry. So there's also an advantage which was built into the Montreal Protocol. So these are some of the learning that emerges from Montreal Protocol that we can use to build the larger climate narrative going ahead. Right. So in your mind then, having been through climate negotiations, you've done so much work in the mining sector, you've all these elements which kind of go into what is climate change in India, what do you think needs to be done? Like, are we only looking at government? Do people's actions count at all? What do you think is the way forward, so to speak? My understanding is that it's a combination of things. Okay, At the most fundamental level, and many people have talked about it, it is our social value and economic system, and especially our education system, which is at the core of the problem. I mean to say, our education system teaches us to consume more, because the richer you are, the more you consume, the more successful you are in the society. That's what our education system teaches us. Our economic system is the more you consume, the more GDP it is. And that's how countries are ranked, as whether you are a wealthy country or you are a poor country. So both our education system, which supports the social narrative and economic system, are actually designed for more consumption which is directly linked to more environmental destruction. I mean to say you can't consume digital bits all the time. You will also have to eat food, wear clothes, drive a car, build infrastructure. So a growing economy requires a lot of material from the environment. 
which leads to economic destruction. So at the most fundamental level, I think from an environmentally destructive narrative in education and an economic system, we have to start talking about how we change our economic system for protection of environment rather than destruction of environment. And how do we change our education system, which brings out citizens which are more responsible towards environment. And therefore, I always say that the easier thing for me to tell you is, okay, save water, save electricity, do not throw waste <laughs> and do not use plastic. Yeah. Okay. But that's, that's not going to solve the problem. Yeah, absolutely. Those are important, but those are just not going to be sufficient. So while I do agree that individual action is important and individual action and awareness will drive change in politics, which will drive change in education and economy. From that perspective, it is very important. But we also have to wholesale change the economic system. It's not going to be easy. But we also understand and we all understand this. People who work in environmental field that just doing a little bit here and a little bit there is not going to solve the environmental problem. We will have to start rethinking our economy and our, our social values and everything afresh if we really want to solve this problem. Thank you so much, Chandra Bhushan. I, I really enjoyed having this conversation with you. It's such varied perspectives on so many very different things. Thank you very, very much. We've had a great time talking to you. Thank you very much. Thank you. <laughs>